picture of Andy Warhol, if you remember, among other things, he said that at some point in the future, everyone would be famous for 15 minutes. Um, and it says underneath his picture, your 15 minutes are up. <laughs> so given that, we'll do what we can here. Last week, I spoke about blessings and what it would be like to go through our life as if we were bowing to each person and each situation that we met, to pay honor or reverence, to respect when we entered our homes or when we entered our car, when we got on the freeway and entered the traffic, or when we met people in our family or when we started to eat, to bow to the food inwardly, or when we met difficulty, those perfect difficulties that arise for us to learn something from, to bow to each of those circumstances. What would the spirit of our life be like to receive it in that fashion, to sense the divine or the gift even in the sorrows and even in the difficulties of life? Reflecting about that further for this week, started to consider how this would translate into worldwide society. And the greatest blessing that we can give is really a very simple one. It's the blessing of not harming other beings. The blessing of, of the Sanskrit word is ahimsa that our life or our actions or our words or our relations to one another and to the world are such that we are not a cause of harm to others, that we meet someone and our way of bowing or paying respect is such that I will not harm you and I will not harm you and I will not harm you. Bowing in this way or honoring or finding some reverence is the source of virtue. The Buddhist teachings of virtue are the five precepts, which I'll talk about later. Not killing and not stealing and not lying and not committing sexual misconduct or not abusing sexuality, not abusing intoxicants. And they're wonderful things. I love the precepts because of what they do for us. What they are really is an outward expression of an inner sense that our conduct and our words is connected with our hearts and what we love and value. This past week I participated for a little while in a week-long conference at Green Gulch Zen Center on ethics in American Buddhism and had a variety of juicy talks and, and interesting topics. So I've been kind of reflecting on this. What would the world be like without virtue, if there were no morality or virtue? <laughs> Thank you, that's just right. As a matter of fact, you can come and give the rest of the talk next week. <laughs> that was great. 
I'll pay him later. <laughs> Think about it. If there wasn't any virtue or morality, people would lie. People would steal from one another. They would kill each other. They would cheat. They would exploit one another. They would abuse one another sexually. They would abuse intoxicants. Unfortunately, <laughs> that's somewhat of a description of our situation, isn't it? But it would be worse if everybody did that. It would be bad, as you said. Let me read you a paragraph. This is from uh, Chogyam Trumpa Rinpoche. It was written when he escaped from Tibet in the 1960s in a cave in Bhutan. He said, this is the hour of the dark ages in which disease, famine, and warfare are raging like the fierce north winds. The Buddhist teaching has waned in strength. The various schools of the Sangha are fighting amongst one another with sectarian bitterness. And although the Buddhist teaching was perfectly expounded and many reliable teachings exist to this day, Still others pursue intellectual speculations. The sacred teachings have strayed into cults, and the yogis are losing the insights of meditation. On the whole, no one acts according to the highest code of discipline or of meditation and wisdom. The jewel-like teaching of insight is fading. The Buddhist teaching is used merely for political purposes, or to draw people together socially. As a result, the great blessings of spiritual energy are being lost. Even those with great devotion may begin to lose heart. If the Buddhas of, of the great ages were to comment, they would surely express some disappointment. So to enable individuals to ask for help and renew their spiritual strength, I write this sadhana of embodiment of all the great siddhas or yogas. And then it goes on for 12 pages of, of a kind of invocation of the spirit of great discipline and great honor and great compassion and great dignity. But there's something in that when you hear it, of the dark ages in sectarianism, not just in Buddhism, but really in a worldwide way. There is lying and stealing and killing of people and exploitation and cheating. That is to say, the absence of virtue. Now, what would the world be like if one precept were kept? Just one. Suppose we didn't kill on this planet. Imagine. How about if we didn't even just didn't kill people? Forget about the poor animals. But if we just kept the precept that we didn't kill human beings on this earth, what kind of an earth would it become? Extraordinary to consider that. Or what if we just kept the single precept not to steal? It's not such a you know, complicated thing. If we just did it, when I practiced for the years that I was uh, in robes as a monk, one followed these strict vows 
And one of the vows was, of course, that monks were not supposed to steal. And it was one of the strictest vows. There were four vows out of 200 and more that if you broke them, from that moment you were no longer a monk and you never would be again in this life. One was the vow of celibacy. One had to do with killing or harming other human beings in some way. Uh, one had to do with causing dissension in the Sangha or claiming spiritual powers that you didn't have. And the last had to do with stealing anything worth more than a nickel. If you took something worth more than a nickel consciously, that was it for this lifetime and you in the monastic life. That's an extraordinary precept, actually. It made one very careful not to pick up the slightest thing and you could do it. It was actually quite wonderful. It made you very conscious. It's not just that someone would care or not, but that was your vow to keep. So what if we kept the precept on this earth not to steal? And no one did it. We just knew that's what you didn't do. Or the one precept not to speak falsely. Imagine. It would be, uh, it'd be an unrecognizable society. There'd be a lot of businesses that folded immediately. <laughs> There'd be almost no use for politics or government. Save a lot of money, right? If one's word was connected with one's honor always, as it has been in certain societies and certain times of the past. The fourth step, I believe, if I have this step correctly, in AA and the other 12-step programs, is to take a fearless moral inventory of one's life. Is that the fourth step? Yeah. Yes. Searching. A searching, searching and fearless moral inventory. That's quite a thing to ask of a human being, isn't it? And it's a wonderful phrase to take a, a searching and fearless moral inventory. It happens quite spontaneously on meditation retreats in times of silence. For many, many people, as you get still and turn your attention to your life away from the busyness, what is there to show itself? Quite spontaneously is a reflection of our deeds, of how we have lived, and spoken and acted. It happens often to people as well when they're near, the, near their death. And you look back over your life, there's a spontaneous kind of moral inventory. Suppose we as a human species took a moral inventory. It would be a very mixed report, wouldn't it? killing, stealing, lying, cheating, and so forth. But it's not just the species as a whole. We've all done it in some way. Yet I believe within us, within the human heart and the human consciousness, is an innate love of honesty and a joy in virtue and straightforwardness and the simplicity of goodness. It's said in the mythological teachings of Buddhism 
There are these 500 stories of the Buddha's former lifetimes when he was an elephant and a monkey and a, the king of the birds and a prince in all different kinds of circumstances. Born into all these circumstances. And as a child, he got himself in trouble in many different ways, or as an adult. He wasn't just being the Buddha in those lives, or he would have been the Buddha. He was practicing. And he made many, many errors. But over those lifetimes that were recorded in this mythology, even though he harmed people and he did all kinds of mischief and worse, the one precept that he never broke was that he never told a lie about it. He was always willing, even when he had done something wrong, to say to himself and another person, this is actually what happened. And because his willingness was to face that, there was a tremendous power of growth or awakening in that. Martin Luther King. I still believe that standing up for the truth of God is the greatest thing in the world. This is the end of life. The end of life is not to be happy. The end of life is not to achieve pleasure and avoid pain. The end of life is to do the will of God, come what may, to stand up for that which is true. You don't hear people talking like that much these days, do you? <laughs> Yet it, there's something really wonderful about it. This is called in Sanskrit adisila, or spontaneous or innate virtue, not of precepts or moral commandments, but the shining of the heart, that inner knowing that every human being possesses of what is true and honest and just that we all know. There is a kind of light around a good woman or a good man. And they're a pleasure to live near and speak with and work with. Someone that you know speaks truthfully from their heart and acts according to their words and reveres life and does not consciously harm others. There's a beautiful sense of grace. It helps one to understand the phrase, the sleep of the just. What kind of sleep one has if one acts with justice and integrity. Now, in Tibetan Buddhist practice, one of the first practices that one does is to look around and see everyone that you look at, all the people around you, and all the beings, all the creatures, and realize that, from the Tibetan Buddhist perspective, that you have been born and died countless times and that every person that you look at and every creature that you see was at one time your child, your beloved daughter or son. They were your mother and your father and your sister and your brother. 
at some time or other every being because we've had so many births we've done this dance so many times i guess trying to figure out how to do it right or something we've done it so many times that every being you see has some time or other played that role for you as you have for them and then the question is how can you treat your mother that way you know or your daughter or your son or your father or your sister or your brother we have all changed identities over and over again, it's said, if you want to believe that. Certainly we have inwardly in our being, if not literally, in many lifetimes. We've played all these different roles. There's a beautiful poem that begins, The universe is made of stories, not atoms. We've played all of these different roles. This last week, I went to San Rafael to Dominican College one evening with my family, with my wife and daughter, to see a, an Indian woman teacher named Amachi. She's a guru or a, a master from South India. And her particular manifestation of Hinduism, which has hundreds and thousands of forms of God and worship, is to manifest as and to celebrate the worship of the Divine Mother or the Holy Mother. And so you go in and there were seven or eight or nine hundred people and there were incense and chanting and, and candles and lights and people chanted for an hour or two the hundred different praises of the Divine Mother of the boundlessness of creation, mother as the great goddess of that out of which all comes, the, the goddess of the earth, uh, the mother that is infinite, that source out of which all is born, um, the goddess of life and death, uh, the womb out of which all things arise. Think about it. Where did you come from, remember? You weren't born out of Zeus's head or however they put that in the Greek myths. And so there was this, this celebration of the capacity of giving life, of bringing life into the world. And in a sense, she was the archetype of the positive mother. And she smiled and she laughed and she bestowed her blessings. And people just chanted on and on about this. It was a very healthy kind of religious experience, especially considering how we tend to think of mothers in our own culture at times. It reminded me a bit of going to a great and ancient monastery in Switzerland, which has one of those European statues of the Black Madonna that has been there for more than 1,500 years. And for 1,500 years, day and night, 24 hours a day, people have done chants to the Madonna in this place. And you enter it and you feel this tremendous force field of prayer or devotion or something. I don't know what happens when you sit in the same room when someone replaces you hour after hour for 1,500 years chanting devotions to the mother. But it was like that to some extent with Amachi. And then what she did, which is wonderful, after there was all this 
chanting and so forth. She went behind a curtain and then she came out and she wore this kind of crown and some jewels and a beautiful sari. And she sat on a throne and chanted and started to kind of vibrate and, and just smile kind of in a blessing-like way. And then she took everyone who was there onto her lap. This was a thousand or eight hundred people or whatever it was, one at a time. And she does this, she does her blessing, she goes from city to city and around India um, every few nights. And she just sits there until there's no one else to put in her lap, if it takes all night. Out in the front of the line, because if you have children with you, it's great to have children around, they get you in the front of the line. Um, and so we went up to get our blessings. And there she was, one person after another. And it's not like a quick hug, kind of push you away and wait to get on to the next person like a politician, right? It's she grabs you and holds you and kind of rubs you a little bit and whispers in you ear, blessings on you, my son, blessings, my daughter, and rubs you some more. And after a while, you're there and you think you, your time is up and you kind of back off and she grabs you again and <laughs> hugs you a little bit longer and whispers things. And then she puts some... some uh, blessings into your hand. Caroline got um, Hershey's Kisses, which was the best she could have got. Chocolate was wonderful. Not only a divine hug, but chocolate <laughs> was her favorite part. Um, and then the next person, and she sits there for three hours, five hours, twelve hours, until she has hugged every person in that room. And it was wonderful. I just sat there and kind of watched this. And people were there and, and affected in different ways. But for the most part, there was this sense of people really being touched or moved by it. There's so much longing in us to be loved, to be honored, to be held by someone. And this was a woman who said I, in, in her being, I will show you what this is, what this can be, the Divine Mother. Let's do that. Um, and it just draws people to it in the most wonderful way. We so much want that. I mean, look around you, the people who are That's what we want. We we'll want to love one another. I mean, it's scary. I know it's scary. All right. Remember that cartoon from Pfeiffer where the, where the uh, woman is saying, but I love you, and the man is saying, don't you threaten me. <laughs> it can be reversed. Don't take it just one-sidedly. It can be reversed. I know it's scary, but that's what we really long for. Now, on an outer level, there are these social rules, the rules of society, the the handshakes, or the bows, or the, the laws, or the rules of morality that we all agree to. But if we begin to look at the source of virtue, because virtue is such a wonderful thing in our life, you can see guilt and shame and fear and cooperation, all these things. If you start to look, you might pay attention. What makes us act that way? But under all that, I believe you will find your Buddha nature. You will find this inner sense of the Tao or the Dharma. There is in us a fundamental awareness 
of what is just and what is true. And this arises into our consciousness here in our hearts, in each person, when we are connected with our inner sense of abundance or well-being or wholeness or contentment. No matter how we've been treated or how much suffering we face or how difficult the situation is, if we're in touch with that sense that we belong, that we deserve to be here on this earth, with this sense of well-being, then out of us comes a response of virtue. I'll read you a poem from Rumi about the ducks. There's a duck inside of you. Her bill is never still, searching through dry and wet alike, like the robber in an empty house, cramming objects in his sack, pearls, chickpeas, anything, always thinking, there's no time, I won't get another chance, more, more. But that duck is so afraid of missing out that it's lost all its generosity and frighteningly expanded its capacity to take in food. The rooster of lust, the peacock of wanting to be famous, the crow of ownership, and the duck of urgency drown them and revive them in another form, changed and harmless. A true person is more calm and deliberate. He or she doesn't worry about interruptions. There's this place in us that thinks, never enough, we need more, that duck that's always grabbing things. But there's another reality within each person of our wholeness, our completeness. A certain sense of stillness and contentment that we can touch. And from that, there's no problem, there's no conflict that arises. This awareness of justice also comes from our sense of relatedness. when there isn't so strongly a sense of myself, my territory, my family, or my clan, or my country, or my group, whatever it is, as opposed to them, of we and them. But there's a sense, a true sense of interdependence or connectedness, that our life depends on the rainforest and the ozone layer and wheat farmers. Wheat farmers are part of what sustain your life. And oil tanker captains. You know that tanker that's burning today? You know, every time you get in your car, you can bow to the oil tanker captain because they're part of what enable you to drive your car. It's not that they're separate from you, those bad guys at Exxon or something. When you're driving. They're just getting the oil to you. So another thing that brings a sense of justice and honesty is the sense that we're all in it together, that we're all connected, that we all support one another. Even soldiers and you. And out of this, there arises some sense of empathy or reverence or respect for all the forms of life, it's dark and it's light, the shadow sides and the beautiful sides. Even for the beings 
causing harm or going through very hard times because in some way we have all been there. That's what Jesus asked, doesn't he? He says, the one among you who has not sinned, throw the first stone. A poem from Stephen Mitchell's book. This is a poem on the Good Samaritan. The priest, the Levite, the Samaritan, and the man who fell among thieves meet in heaven to talk over old times. Since heaven has no past or future, they revisit the scene of the crime. I felt awful about not helping you, the priest says. My heart just wasn't open enough, but I'm working on it. He probably lives in Marin, right? <laughs> the last time I stopped to help a wounded man by the roadside, the Levite says, he beat me and ran off with my wallet. I guess I was just too afraid. The man who fell among thieves takes a sip of wine. Charity begins at home, he says. If I'd been kinder to myself, I wouldn't have been in that mess to begin with. But I'm very grateful to all three of you. It takes great humility to step aside for parable's sake. And without the parable, I would never have been saved. It was my good fortune to be in the right place at the right time, the Samaritan says. I didn't stop to think, it just happened. The oil and wine poured themselves, the wound bound itself. My only problem came later, dealing with all the praise. He has a good time as a poet. We've all played all those roles. I'm afraid my wallet was stolen before, or I'm trying to get my heart a little bit more open, or I guess I just wasn't paying attention and fell into a bad situation. <laughs> or there I was, and what else was there to do but to bind your wounds and to heal you? Meditation or spiritual life asks, it even requires it when we get silent, asks us to look at our actions and pay attention to how we actually live. You can already see it. It's very hard to sit and meditate in a formal way after a day of lying and stealing. It just doesn't work very well, right? It asks us through the attention that it engenders, not just to follow our breath or feel our body, but to connect with what is true and our relatedness to the world around. Connect our hearts and our breath and how we live all together. Now, it's very helpful to have outward prescriptions or reminders, limitations, which are called the traditional precepts. No matter what happens, don't kill other beings. Bow to them, honor them, minimize the harm that you do in this life. I remember the students of Katagiri Roshi going and saying there's cockroaches all over the zendo and we've taken a vow not to kill and they're all in the they're all in the kitchen as well and there are mice in the kitchen and rats or whatever. What should we do? Should we kill them or shouldn't we? If we don't, there you know there's more of them and they multiply and no one will come and meditate. But if we do, we break our vows. What should we do? He said, I'm not going to tell you. 
because there isn't a simple answer to those kind of questions. There is our own inner sense that we have to struggle with to not harm or to minimize the harming of this life. We live on other life, but can we live in such a way that we pay respect and reverence and care as best as we're able? No matter what happens, as best we can, to not kill, to not steal, and more than that, to use what we have with care. Because whatever we use, in a sense, we borrow from our children, we borrow from the poor. What we have belongs to everyone. We don't own it ourselves. To not speak falsely. If you could keep that one precept, you would get enlightened. That's all you need for practice. Forget meditation. If our words were true every time we spoke, if we listened that carefully so that they were true and compassionate, what more would we need? To not abuse sexuality, exploit or create suffering from it. A lot of us have done that. I won't even ask how many. You know, how many of us have been idiots around sexuality? Don't raise your hand. Unnecessary. To not abuse intoxicants. The amount of suffering on this earth, the millions, tens of, the hundreds of millions of alcoholics and people addicted to drugs and people addicted to other substances and their families and the fact that the majority of auto accidents and fires in the home and sexual abuse and, and child abuse all happen when people are drunk or on drugs. Very powerful things, these precepts. So outwardly, they're wonderful. They're important. They're something to understand and reflect on and use and honor. But even more so is to sense they're arising inwardly. If we look and study when it is we break precepts, when we don't follow what our justice and our truth and our love is, when does it happen? I've seen that it's often in an inner state of fear or inadequacy or some sense of deficiency or some great hurry that I'm in. When our identity is impoverished and small and our view of life is overwhelming and complicated, then we tend to shortcut things out of our fear. You understand? Yet there is a greatness that is possible in every one of our lives. From the Bhagavad Gita it says, if you want to see the brave, look for those who can forgive. If you want to see the heroic, look for those who can love in return for hatred. That's real bravery and heroism, forgiveness and love. This is possible for us. Outwardly, inwardly, to respect that we can awaken, we can connect with this aspect of our being, our hearts. Certainly in big things, but more often in very small things. 
Yet the small things are equally important. At this Green Gulch conference on ethics, the different teachers were talking about their, the issues in their community. And one Zen, one meditation teacher said, I work mostly with Asian refugees who get whatever jobs they can. And in my community, there's a big weapons factory. And a lot of them work there, but it's the only work they can get. And they ask me, is this right livelihood? What should I say to them? And somebody else said, yeah, that happens to me. This is a Zen teacher who lives in Texas. He said, we live in a place where the big plant in town makes the triggers for nuclear weapons. And the town is really poor, and half the people in the town work there. What do you say to these people? And immediately you can feel it touch your heart. Or students come and they say, should I, what should I do about my taxes? I mean, how honest are you supposed to be with your taxes after all? Huh? Interesting. Or should I go into politics? Someone student asked them. They were interested in politics. Should they do that? Is that right livelihood anymore? Or is it possible to do it honestly? Last year at our teacher meeting, I made a proposal to us as a teacher group, the 20 Vipassana teachers who got together, that we have an ethics council for the Vipassana community on the east and west coast made up of a teacher and a board member and a couple of community members and a staff member, all of whom are selected for their integrity. And that it be a place that anyone in our community can go who has concerns about the behavior of teachers or staff. Because it's happened so much in spiritual communities. We agreed to do that. And then we went over a list of rules that we wanted to keep as, as teachers ourselves. And we went basically through the five precepts. Not to kill to try and avoid killing any life in, in any way. Not to steal, and particularly to take great care with the money that's, that's entrusted to us from the Sangha in terms of building or, or using money at retreats. To really be careful with that. Write speech. As teachers, to be careful not to gossip. It's easy to do. Not to undermine other people or harm one another through our speech but to speak directly to people if we had difficulties with them rather than talking about them. Sexuality. Not f for those who are married to, to, to have their sexuality remain within their marriage, for those who are not married, to not have sexual relations with, with students that they were in an active teacher-student relationship with or with students that they'd met in the first year, even if they weren't their own student or with students on or around retreats. To avoid intoxicants, in, uh, abusive intoxicants naturally, but also not to use intoxicants in such a way that in any teaching situation you would come and be in any way intoxicated. So we wrote these up, we're going to publish them in The Inquiring Mind, because it seems important to make them public and also then to make a place where if people have concerns, they can come and meet with someone, speak with a teacher or such a group. These things 
are what make for long-lasting, virtuous well-being, for the long life of the Dharma. And it's for us as teachers and as a community, and I share that with you, but it's really true for everybody in their life, for every community. Now, as I end, I have a few questions to ask you. A little moral inventory. What is your own unfinished business around virtue or lack of it in your life? What areas or precepts, what areas of virtue are hard for you? What raises questions and red flags in your life? And in those places where it's difficult, what sense of yourself, what identity is there with you? How do you feel about yourself? How do you sense yourself in those times where it's hard? What other identity might be possible? How else could you hold yourself? and sense your being. Where is it time for greater honesty or silence if you can't be honest? Greater straightforwardness of your heart. Where is it time for greater justice and love for others and for oneself? Where do you need to bring more love? To consider virtue is not the outer precepts, but to listen and sense what is the deepest place in us of justice and love that we can manifest or bring to this earth. And that is who we really are if we're still enough to listen, if we ask. There are only two powers in this world. This is a quote to end with. There are only two powers in this world, the power of the sword and the power of the spirit. In the long run, the sword will always be conquered by the spirit. That's a quote from Napoleon. Isn't that amazing? There are only two great powers on this earth, the power of the sword and the power of the spirit. In the long run, the sword will always be conquered by the spirit. Thank you for listening. 
To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.